This morning we start a new series that we are going to continue up until Easter. We're going to be looking at lessons in Luke, the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and uh, we will be uh, enjoying this gospel as we work our way through it. According to New Testament scholar Patrick Schreiner, the early church compared Luke's gospel to an ox. Always use this oxen imagery because the oxen are these beasts of burden, these humble creatures bearing burdens, and uh, just this tremendous symbol of divine strength, emphasizing sacrifice, passion in the burden bearer. And uh, then, of course, Jesus calls all of his followers to be bearers of one another's burdens uh, as we increasingly walk into that new humanity and then live out the implications of imitating the one who saved us in grace. So this morning, our scripture comes to us from Luke chapter 3, the first 21 verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Eturia and Trachontus, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. And John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him, by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And John replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly, and all were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is more powerful than I, whose straps of the sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that Herod had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. And when all the people were being baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And as he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him bodily in the form of a dove. And the voice came from heaven, saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. 
As we explore this passage, I want us to consider a few things. The first is the significance of this setting. Secondly, the implication of the call to repentance. And then lastly, this display of grace in baptism. So first, the significance of this setting. Jesus is being baptized at the Jordan River. This is the setting of the Exodus. And it's foreshadowing his redeeming work. This great work of grace, the ultimate Exodus. Salvation from sin, the finality of death. Jesus is the greater Joshua. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you note that Moses does not bring the people into the promised land. Moses was the one who gave the law. The law came through Moses. Moses could not keep the law. And Moses did not enter into the promised land. Is this striking image that nobody can be saved by law-keeping. Moses doesn't enter into the promised land. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. That Salvation has never been through the law, always by God's grace. And even the one who gave the law wasn't able to keep it. And we read earlier this morning in our liturgy that the scriptures record that all have fallen short of the glory of God. That, that we are desperately in need of a savior. And so this theme of exile and homecoming is a strong theme all through Scripture. That God's people, the people of God, are in exile and they're awaiting this glorious homecoming to be brought into the promised land. That Jesus Christ being the greater Joshua ushering in the ultimate exodus for the people of God from every nation, every tongue, every tribe being brought from exile into homecoming. That homecoming being the renewal of all things. That with the return of Christ, which is promised because of his resurrection... That there will be renewal, and he will raise us to enjoy that renewal. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ being material and physical, being significant, that heaven is not traveling into the ethereal, but it is the restoration of this beautiful, glorious, material world that we enjoy, and the the resurrection of our bodies to enjoy it. And so this setting is incredibly intentional, incredibly significant, that is Christ's bringing in the exodus that the promise of god is fulfilled in christ the promises all through the old testament of a people and a land but the people is bigger than everybody first thought and the land is bigger than everybody first thought dr michael allen was the systematic theology professor at knox where i went to seminary and he said it this way that true israel is in the heart and the mind of god why he chose israel was that they would be a nation of priests to all the other nations So he chooses them for the purpose of being a blessing to all the nations. They were to be a conduit. So the people of God is the nation of Israel and every other nation. And the land is not a small patch of land in the Middle East that's been fought for and blood has been shed over for millennia. The land is the earth. And I know some people get nervous when you speak this way because they say, oh my goodness, this sounds like a replacement theology that we're somehow minimizing the Hebrews. Or, oh my goodness, uh, this is anti-Semitic. Well, a great way to stop discussion and discourse is just to say to somebody they're anti-something and then everyone just quiet. This, what this is, is recognizing that God loved the Hebrews. He loved and loves the people, people of Israel, that they were intended to be a conduit. Of course, they failed at this throughout the Old Testament. And Christ is the fulfillment of each and every patriarch who in some way, shape, or form failed. 
But he would be, God would come himself and be the one that ushers in the exodus. That the people are all peoples, that the land is the earth. And so when we read in Romans chapter 9 and 10, when the church is predominantly Greeks and Romans, Paul's answering a question, if you read 9 and 10 in Romans, where he says, has God forsaken his people? And he's answering the question saying, no, he hasn't. Did God forget about the Jews? Because from our point of view in the first century, it looks like there aren't very many of them around. Most of the church is Greco-Roman. So Paul's answering a question saying, no, God's not forgotten his people. He will, he will bring uh, all peoples, including the people of uh, Israel, to saving grace and knowledge of him. But by his grace, the gospel would go global, which of course it has. And it sort of circled the globe in wondrous spirit-led waves for 2,000 years. And it will continue to do that. And so Paul answers that question in, in Romans uh, 9 and 10. And it seems to be, and theologians can't really agree on how it's going to practically play out because we don't know. But it seems that there will be this glorious resurgence of the people of Israel turning to Jesus Christ as Savior. When and how that happens, nobody really knows. Uh, some wonder if it would be like a grand revival that takes place where there's by the masses or is a slow trickle over centuries. Nobody knows the answer to that. But the point is that God has not forsaken his people and that God will, God will fulfill his promises. And so as the church, it's important for us, I think, particularly in today's climate, that we understand the promise of God, the ultimate exodus, the ultimate redemptive plan so we can step back and then be loving and, and, and uh, thoughtful and prayerful for our brothers and sisters around the world including Israel and every other nation, not feeling obligated, as some of the churches in the West feel, to support uh, Israel wholesale politically, because God did not even support Israel politically. Our support for Israel is a spiritual support. It is a spiritual love and care and desire, as it is for every other nation. The entire book of Amos is God saying, I don't approve of what's going on here. The entire book of Amos is God saying, you better not pray for the day of the Lord because you're so far from my heart, my love, and my ways that my judgment would be against you. So this is not anti-Semitic speech. This is just unpacking world history and saying that what God has done has chosen his people so that through them they would be a conduit of blessing to the earth. So today our hearts and our prayer for Israel, for Palestine, for every nation suffering under the horrors of war, the destruction of every political power that rises up against itself, against God, in a myriad of ways that don't reflect his love, his grace, or the flourishing of humanity that he's intended from the beginning. This is a way for us to sit back and say, we trust that God will continue to do a saving grace, which is not going to be accomplished under the wisdom of man and our own politics, but ultimately it has to come through Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his return, and his ultimate exodus. This is the significance of this setting taking place at the Jordan River. That God is going to accomplish what he did and nobody will stand in the way of this. And so this shines us a great spotlight on what God is doing, the way that Luke records it, this, uh, where this is all taking place. There's a great hope for all of us in these uncertain times that we're not trusting in God in abstract ways, but that concretely, historically, Throughout world history, he has moved, and he will continue to move and draw men and women from every tribe, nation, and tongue to his saving grace. This is the significance of this setting. Let's move on to the implications of this call of repentance. Repentance is this life of turning, turning from small functional saviors 
a term that I never forgot that I heard from the late Tim Keller. These functional saviors, these small mini-messiahs, smaller than God, infinitely more impotent than God that we just put all of our trust and our hope in and we orbit our lives around them and they sort of have this gravitational pull for our affections. And they're too small, these functional saviors. Repentance is turning from those things, even if they're good things, but not to elevate them as ultimate, to Christ the ultimate savior. That This union with Christ, this return to our creator God, this postures the soul to truly flourish. This repentance is not, this message of repentance, John is not saying, you guys are sinners, you ought to feel bad about that. Repentance is not just, oh, I feel bad about it. Of course there is a sorrow when we look at the, 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 the things that we have done that are incongruent with the love and the, the wisdom of God. Of course there's a sorrow there. It's appropriate that there's a sorrow there. But repentance isn't just like, feel bad about it. The Christian life isn't wake up every day and just feel guilt and just feel guilty and bad about the ways you guys are missing the mark. Repentance is turning your life and going in a completely different direction, a trajectory of flourishing. If after the service today you say, oh, the sun is shining, it's glorious, it's beautiful. You know what? Let's drive to Toronto, go to Lakeshore, look at the blanket of snow, the city on one side, Lake Ontario on the other. The sun is beaming. Enjoy time with friends and family. Let's get some food. Let's enjoy Lakeshore. And so you leave the service today and you get in your car and you get on 85. And then after 85, you get on 401 West. You need to repent. In the truest sense of the word, you need to repent. Because you're not getting there. you got to go east. And it doesn't matter how much you're enjoying the drive and how much it feels right to you. None of it matters. You need to repent. Because if you're going, if your trajectory is wrong, a U-turn is progress. And so John comes and he's calling the people to repentance. And we, as believers, saved by grace, with no need for our obedience to do any earning for us, are called to live these lives of repentance. And it's not just waking up every day and dragging our knuckles and feeling bad about things. It's like, I want to continually align to a trajectory of flourishing. And that reorients the way that we relate to God as Heavenly Father, some of us, that's tricky language depending on your, your experience of an earthly father. But what we, what we get the picture of this divine father, of the loving creator father, who's moved heaven and earth to save us and draw us to a trajectory of flourishing. Just a massive interception of the trajectory that we want. And I know a lot about interceptions because I cheer for the New York Giants every once in a while. That all of this means that Dad is watching. But how does that hit the ear? For some of us, that's like scary. Oh man, if you grew up in a church where they're like, holiness is punching the church in the face every seven days, okay? Then the idea of dad watching is like this terrifying thing. But there's another way some kids relate to dad watching. And some of you have done it yourselves, and some of you have experienced it, and it goes like this. Dad, 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 look, dad, dad, watch, dad, dad. Are you watching? What, dad? Because it's just this, this joy, this boisterous, dad, dad, look at this, dad, dad, dad. Look at this art that I made today, dad. And dad says, whoa, puts it on the fridge. Ah, my kid made this for me. Now, if you go over to the house and you go, hey, man, I'm looking at this art. This isn't very good. 
Uh, I've noticed there's the body is missing. There's just a there's appendages coming out of the head, uh, arms, legs, smiley face. This is terrible. I mean, nothing about this is very good. And the dad's gonna be like, uh, I need you to step off because my kid made that, and I happen to love it. That's a picture of our obedience. Standing next to Jesus, none of our obedience is very good. But are we committed to it? You better believe it. Why? Because dad is watching. We love him. Repentance transforms the way in which we relate to our Heavenly Father, to obedience, to everything. God's me- I, I'm sorry, John's message. Well, it is God's message. John's message was not repent, you sinners, and feel bad about it. His message was the king is here. So change your trajectory. The Messiah is here. Deliverance is coming. They didn't even understand the, the, they understood it as sort of local and political deliverance. It ended up being global, spiritual, eternal, you know, deliverance. It was much bigger. But the message was, the, the good news was turn around. Because flourishing is on the other side of this true worship. That's why it comes with such strong warning language. And why is John so angry here in verse 8? You brood of vipers. Sounds like he's yelling at the crowd. If you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or sorry, sorry, not John, because it's not one of the synoptic gospels, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, called the synoptic gospels, are all looking at the same things from different angles, like a prism. And you lay them out. Matthew gives us details that aren't here. And who he's yelling at is not just the masses. Of course, the warning is, apor- is applicable to the masses and to you and I. But he's actually speaking to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's calling the religious leaders vipers. So why is he so angry about this? It's because they came to watch the baptism, not participate in the baptism. They're like, you guys need this, but we don't need this. Abraham's our daddy. And John's like, Psh, God can make these rocks have, give, have children for Abraham. You need this. They were relating to the baptism of John, this cleansing, as like, no, this is not something that we need you know, to, to do or to participate in. And so, this is why the strong uh, warning language comes. He's criticizing them for the idea that they're going to be okay on the basis of their externals or the family heritage or whatever. My mom and dad planted the trees that, you know, grew the wood that built the church that we're in, that sort of a thing. He said, no. So he says, make, your, make the paths straight. And so then we get this uh, quote from Isaiah chapter 40, where it talks about making the path straight, you know, lowering the high places and raising up the low places. It's a... It actually comes from this practice of the Eastern monarchs when whenever they were going to go on an expedition, they took a, a, they took a journey where they would send people ahead of time to prepare the highway for them. And so they would make the way smooth. It's like before the monarch comes, we're going to build his own personal highway so he has a nice smooth travel on the way in. And so that image is used for the heart, prepare, the repentance of the heart. What needs to get knocked out? What needs to get removed? Well, it's great diagnostic questions for the people of God. What, do, what, is it that I, what is it that I can do that would make way for the king? Not from fear and knuckle dragging, but from sheer joy. Like a little child saying, Dad, Dad, Dad. What can I, what can I do so that I can love him in this way? Removing these, these impediments. What's my response to this? It's like this idea of, of preparing this, of this highway of removing things is like an episode of, you know, love it or list it, sin edition. 
It's like an episode of Hoarders. Hey, why do you have all this stuff? No, and the, the Hoarders are like, no, I can't get rid of it. Why? You don't need this big pile of junk. No, you don't understand. I've attached part of who I am to it. And I feel like if I lose all that stuff, I'm losing a part of who I am. I'm losing a part of my identity or these memories. I have to hoard it. And to not live the life of repentance is to just hoard the sin. No, I can't lose that. This is a part of who I am. This is my identity. This is part of my sense of meaning. It's what... But when you fall in love with the king and you're ready to make way for the king, you, you list it. You don't love it. You're like, what do I have to do to get rid of this? What do I have to do to make way for the king? He says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying this, of course, to the whole audience, but in particular, he's firing shots across the bow at the religious leaders. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And uh, there's a professor emeritus of philosophical theology at Yale. His name was Nick Wolsterstoff, and he coined a phrase which theologians have used for years. It's a great phrase called the quartet of the vulnerable. The poor the refugee, the outcast, and uh, the widow. And you're supposed to care for these groups. And the Pharisees did the opposite of that. And John is calling him out and he's saying, you've got to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You should have a life that looks like you're on a different highway. Uh, you need to repent. You need to turn around. You've got to go in a different way. And what it ends up looking like is this new citizenship, this new sense of living and flourishing under the wisdom of God's law and his way, the, the indwelling power of his spirit, with that new citizenship coming, new patterns, new ways of living. Might be a struggle, but you get used to it. When Susan went to, on a trip to Ireland with her sister, I told the story before, but of course they're driving a manual transmission car. The wheel is on the opposite side. You're driving on the opposite side. Her sister was so stressed out driving, she was, she was just freaking out. So Susan, because Susan can drive a manual transmission car and the gear shift is on the, on the same, uh, uh, for her, she could, she could do it. So Susan is... Uh, doing the shifting while her sister is just driving and working the clutch. And so both of them are driving the car. And uh, they stop beside a, a city bus and the bus driver looks down and he goes, uh-huh, and does a double take. Like, both of you are driving this car. What's happening? They're like, how's it going? I'll shift, she'll you do the clutch. But, you know, if you were to become a citizen of Ireland, it would be quite tricky to drive around on, from our point of view, what is the wrong side of the car, the wrong side of the gear shift. But over time, you grow into enjoying the freedoms that come with your new citizenship and those freedoms look like embracing new laws. And so to bear the fruit of repentance looks like, oh, my life is just living into the wisdom and the love and the grace of God's laws. So let's move on to the final thing, this display of grace in baptism. So at the end of this text, Jesus is baptized. And John is baptizing everybody this symbolic cleansing. Where did John learn how to do this? Why is John doing this? Learn this from his daddy. His dad is Zechariah, a priest, a Levi priest. So John would have grown up with the knowledge of ceremonial cleansing. He would have seen his dad doing ceremonial cleansing. Various ways of cleansing and preparing yourself in the temple. Various ways of, of uh, performing cleansing for people who... This sort of a cleansing were Gentiles, people from different uh, uh, nations, wanting to worship Jehovah God, coming to saving faith in the Creator God, and wanting to become Jewish. 
And so they would go through, the Gentiles would go through a ceremonial cleansing as, a, as part of the symbol of uh, them uh, being cleansed of their sin and then following the Torah and being Torah observant and trusting in the God who saved uh, Israel from Egypt. Right? So this was a good part of that. And so for, so for a Jew to get baptized in this way was really, really humble because they were saying, I'm as far away from God as a Gentile. Because I'm going through a cleansing ritual that the Gentiles are going through. That's how far away from God I am. So there's just this tremendous humility. So you can understand the Pharisees and the Sadducees are like, nah, we're good. We're not far away from God like that. We're way better than, <laughs> we're way better than those guys. But John is performing this ceremonial cleansing. Jesus comes. And so when Jesus is baptized, the baptism of Jesus for just an average onlooker, until the heavens open and there's this divine manifestation of the spirit that appears as a, not as an actual dove, but like a dove. And they hear this audible voice. Before that happens, Jesus is willing to humiliate himself to be like getting a baptism that signifies, I'm as far away from God as a Gentile. And he's not. He's sinless. He's righteous. But he does this to identify with us. But then the voice from heaven comes and he's identified to us. This glorious picture of saving grace from our king who stoops. And in verse 16, John says, look, he's going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the fire of God throughout the Old Testament constantly doing a number of things. Illuminating, consuming, refining. The fire of God, a symbol of his presence. Sometimes it's a poetic imagery, the fire. Other times in the Old Testament, it was a literal the, uh, not, not a theophany, but a literal manifestation of the presence of God in fire, the burning bush at the temple, these sorts of things. And so John's, John is saying, I am doing an external cleansing here, but he is going to come and his Holy Spirit's fire is going to do an internal cleansing. There's going to be real transformation. Real renewal. The gospel is inside out. And so then all that strong language of the judgment comes up. The axe is going to be put to the root. The winnowing fork is going to toss, you know, the winnowing fork, you toss the grain and the chaff into the air. And the chaff just blows away and the grain remains. A consistent image of all of the judgment uh, sort of metaphors and imagery throughout all of scripture. Where the evil will be removed and God's uh, glorious creation will remain. All those who've trusted God will remain. We're not all getting zipped off to some cartoon heaven. We're remaining. It's always been the image. God is going to restore what he created in Genesis. How he does it, we don't know. The extent of that, we don't know. We bend our knee to that sort of phenomena. But we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ being bodily gives us assurance of this. And so he uses all of this strong uh, warning language. And you notice that the, this, the warning is not against being weak in faith. It's about having fake faith, misrepresentative faith, all of the, the audience of his warnings. It's not about, he's not warning those who are struggling to believe or struggling to uh, trust God or struggling to walk out their faith. It, the warnings are for those who have a veneer of faith. It's not real. They're going through the religious motions. I mean, when you call a minister a viper, something went wrong in their theology, right? Something's bad. Something's not representative of God. 
And so in Jesus' baptism, there's an, there is a sense of an end and a beginning. When we are baptized, there's a sense of uh, the end, the, you know, death to our sin and living into new life. For Jesus, of course, there is no sin, but there is an end to his vocation. As He spent 30 years as a carpenter, 30 years in the community. Everybody knows him. That's Joseph and Mary's boy. He's, there's, there's an end to the ways relating to family and friends and vocation. Because now there's a new vocation. As the last three years of his life, there's this shift that teaches us lots of things. It's a sermon for another day to unpack the importance of vocation. God saw fit to be a carpenter for 30 years. And for that to be meaningful and valuable, there's lots to be unpacked there. But now there's a definite shift here. A new beginning as he begins to have this journey to the cross of his grace, of his forgiveness through his miracles to show his, in, his intention of the renewal of all things. God the Son takes our place in baptism. God the Spirit present in baptism. God the Father affirming in baptism. That our baptism identifies us with God and reminded of the regenerating work of the Spirit that we're affirmed, that we are his children. This voice, I am, uh, where he says, uh, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This voice of the Father. There's a theologian, Anglican theologian named John Trapp, who says, God so loved the Son, He gave Him the whole world for His possession. And He so loved the world, He gave us His Son for redemption. And so this life that we live now, this life of repentance, it's, it's driven by gratitude, not guilt. This tremendous gift that makes our hearts, repentance is like soil where the fruit of the Spirit grows. How much of, God, how much of uh, our sin has God atoned for through Jesus Christ? All of it. Every week at the Lord's table, we celebrate it. Our sin is gone. Past, present, future. So if that's true, sometimes in our immature Christianity, we want to do the math on grace. Oh, well, if that's true, how much can I get away with? I mean, he's going to just keep on forgiving me, right? But then, of course, this is juvenile. But as we mature, there's a chemistry in the heart that does away with the math of the mind. When we're young, we think things like, oh, maybe God will forgive me, and it doesn't matter. But eventually, the life of repentance leads to the chemistry, the chemistry in the heart, overcoming the math of the mind, where, where God's word says to us, thou shalt do this, and our hearts are saying, this is what I want. We want to live in this kind of congruence. I want my art on God's fridge. I know my obedience is imperfect, but I love him and I want to live to his glory. And I want to present him with my artwork anyways. I want to live in imitation. And so as children of God, may our lives not be echoes of the dreams and the frustrations and the hopes and the woes of our city. May our lives be a voice of hope. May our message be this gospel, this anchor that the King has come, that he is coming again. May we remember the grace in our baptism, die to our old selves, and live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. Amen. Let's pray.